Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Keep them up nice and close to our faces. There we go. You want some ASMR? No ASMR, <laughs> but we are around the campfire. And, you know, we got some good lumber for this campfire. We've got some marshmallows. Some schmores. Some schmores. But Vince, the first time ever at the campfire, we've got a podcast listener. Wow. And, and he's not on the fire. He's not on the fire. <laughs> Put his ass to the fire. So, welcome, Luke. Thanks for having me, Glenn. I can say that there is marshmallows here. Yes. Well, everyone. Yes, love it. So, we actually met Luke at the Sydney live event. Yeah. And Luke had a question for for Vince at the live event, I think just over drinks. And I'd had way too many beers. Yeah, and we said, just come and have a campfire chat with us at some stage. And here we are. So... We'll get Luke to share his uh, story a little bit later. Um, But let's just jump into some questions. The first question is, I actually saw recently an article online where a top fund manager, and I don't know if it was just a PR spin to get some media attention, a top fund manager said, bonds will not be around in the future. Bond. Government bond. Go on, government bond. So what like what do you think? I to be honest, I think as long as humans are on this planet, companies and corporations and governments will be issuing some type of bonds to get some capital in the door. Yeah. I mean the the notion that debt's gonna disappear, whether government debt or corporate debt is just a nonsense. What those things actually look like is, I guess, something that continually changes. Um, I mean, we have a fun fact. The reason it's called a bond coupon is that you used to tear off the bit of the bond and hand it over to the paying agent and get paid your your interest payment. We obviously stopped doing that in the 80s. Mm. And we've moved to electronic clearance. Um, so, there's no reason why the form of it's going to change, but it's still fundamentally, you give us money, we give you a piece of paper or an electronic piece of paper that says we owe you money and periodically we pay you interest. So, does it really matter to change the fundamentals that the record of who owns that bond is kept on a blockchain? But that's also the same thing with um, this argument with currency and crypto, like we're always going to agree as a society that something is worth something and we will exchange this something 
to get something in return. That's right. W- whether it's seashells or big stones or pieces of gold. Or tulips. Or tulips. Um, don't know if we ever use them in currency, but um, <laughs> pineapples were big in Victorian England. Yeah. Um, and we, whether that's represented by a piece of gold or a piece of paper signed by the governor of the Reserve Bank or by a entry in a ledger, um, does it really matter? And as a practical matter, when was the last time you held a note in your hand? Well, actually, <laughs> actually, um, yesterday, but that was circumstantial because I had, I, I can't give details away, but I keep cash in my cars just in case I need it in an emergency. Mm-hmm. And I opened my little centre console and went, oh. And the moths blew out. Yeah, this this fun stuff to rub together. But I've just pulled up the article. Mm-hmm. Vimal Gore, I think, was the guy. Yeah, that's right. So, Kindle. exclusive uh, from journalist Jessica Sear, if that's how I pronounce her surname. Bonds won't exist in 10 years. Vimal Gore quits Pendle and joins crypto. Fixed income manager Vimal, or Vimal Gore has quit his post at Pendle Group to join crypto advisory firm Trovio and reckons government bonds will vanish within a decade and be replaced by fundraising through central digital bank currencies. Well, sorry, that's what we do today. Yeah. So if we want to raise some money, what does it do? The central bank creates an entry in its ledger and sells electronic paper. Mr. Gore, who was Pendle's head of bond income and defensive strategies, will bring his five-person team across to Trovio, where he will head up at digital assets funds. So, I look, I'm not going to go and read the rest of this article, but I think it's fair to say that there's nothing stopping a government from setting up, or a corporation from setting up their own blockchain mm-hmm. with their own smart contracts mm-hmm. to exchange people for some of their cash yep, and kind of have this digital bond. I mean, most of the records are held in AustroClear or EuroClear now anyway. So the oh. fact that you own half a million dollars of Australian government, 20, 30, 3% bonds, you'll never physically see one. I, just the sceptic in me, and I'm all about PR and getting names out there, particularly my millennial money <laughs> in the trade press and all that stuff. But um, I think it's a good PR thing for Trovio. Yeah, great news story. Luke, do you have any comments? Mate, there's not a whole lot for me to add. I, I don't own any bonds directly or anything like that. But whether they go to that digital level of what you're saying with cryptocurrency, um, I, don't, I don't know. But I feel like there will always be a place for them as an asset class like people as I age naturally as I get you know whatever older I will probably look to more defensive assets anyway naturally like at the moment where I'm trying to accumulate as much as I can it is probably more equities or growth assets but you know but but whether again the same thing whether they're in paper form or whether in some sort of digital form or some other digital form that we don't know yet I think there'll always be a place for them. Yeah, and this article, yeah, bonds won't exist in 10 years. The principles will, and it probably will be a bond, but it might be a smart contract. Yeah, so governments will still be borrowing money and paying interest. Mm. Um, yeah, if, if you can conceive of a world in which governments don't borrow, um, that's a pretty 
But it's a it's a good thing for us to learn to kind of read beyond the headline <laughs> because this could read that, oh, this is just an example why crypto is the next big thing and all that. No, the concepts are never changing, really. That's right. Um, so there you have it, everyone. That was a good one to start. Now, I just wanted to jump in and say that Vince Scully is um, regular on the show from Life Sherpa. Welcome back, Vince. Thank you, Clay. And Luke, just tell us a little bit about yourself to give context. Are you a professional Ooh. fixed interest fund manager or anything like that? <laughs> Who believes the bonds are dead? Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm a, uh, I'm a plumber by trade. Um, just work for, work for a big sort of company now, just sort of doing a bit of gas stuff, um, knocking around. But no, by no means am I from um, the top end of town. I just, uh, do you actually still use lead? Yeah, uh, no, so yeah, no, no, don't do that anymore mm. at all. Um, everything's got it. Anyway, I won't go into it. That's fine. Just with that mic, Luke, if yeah. if it's a bit awkward, because I know Vince is a professional podcaster and I'm right. trying to have a profession in it. <laughs> sometimes if you do what I'm doing and taking one of the headphones out. Oh, yeah, feels weird. Well, it will just allow your microphone to go closer. And it yeah, won't, okay. Yeah, right. so sometimes That's I do better. this because you can hear yourself um, acoustically in the room. You sound very good on the... Oh, really? Yeah, you do. Oh, well, thank uh, you. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. Um, all right yeah. So, so there you we go. We can always everyone. fix it okay. in post. Well, it's hard to... Um, Nate. Thanks, Nathan. But anyway, <laughs> so these are the campfire chats. We just hang around and chat. Now, I want to address an issue that, Vince, we got dragged into in another Facebook group during uh, what, this there past are other ones? week. There is. Um, in the last campfire chat we had... We talked about um, how a 100% growth portfolio might not deliver the optimal returns over time and that there is a – well, there is an argument to have some defensive assets in a well-rounded portfolio. Did you want to just comment on that or just add anything else yeah, to that discussion because it is a big one because so many people in the Facebook group and all online, they're like, I've got, you know, these, this is my portfolio. I'm 100% growth. Um, do we still need, well, do we still need bonds? If they're not going to be around in 10 <laughs> years, like, what are we doing? Um, I mean, I think the confusion that arose, which is obviously very difficult when you're sitting around a campfire eating schmores, mm. was between the concept of risk-adjusted returns and nominal expected returns. So, as a general rule, you would expect that equities, which are a growth asset, should deliver higher longer-term, long-term returns than bonds, which are defensive assets. So, the argument goes, well, if some is good, is more better. And there comes a point where adding more growth doesn't add proportionally to your returns as it does add to risk. So risk goes up proportionally more than the expected return. And so whilst your expected return for a 100% growth portfolio theoretically might be higher, your risk-adjusted return 
won't necessarily be higher. And for significant periods in history, 100% growth will underperform a 90 or 80%. Mm. But over a long enough period, you would expect to have a higher return from a 100% growth portfolio. However, because you're taking more, you're adding more risk than you are adding return, you're increasing the likelihood that you will end up with a return that's less than the risk-free rate. And you're also triggering behavioral problems that prevent people actually realizing the gain. And I wanted to jump in there. When we're looking at this type of stuff and there might be some hard data, so there's always the bench test and there's always the real world. In the bench test with personal finance, I should absolutely use, as Rich Dad said, OPM, other people's money, and use my credit card every month to buy crap and then the money's left on my offset account so I'm getting the benefits here. On the bench, perfect scenario. But in the real world, I spend more. In the real world, I forget to make a payment. In the real world, I might get charged an overdue fee. With investing, if you find data that says 100% growth portfolio means that you will get a better return than having a defensive portion, there's a more chance of you having a wobbly That's right. when things get rough and wanting to sell out. Yeah. And don't forget those last weeks means, yeah, on average, over long enough a period. That's and right. there have been very long periods when it's not been the case. Um, is, so, sorry to jump in, but no, no, that, no when, you, when you talk about risk-adjusted return, that that's like a foreign thing to me as such like I it was funny I was I was only having a conversation like an, a couple of hours ago with a guy from work um that is into this sort of thing as well and it was it was that que- question of asset um allocation and why you do have a defensive portion at all and what we've just been going on to um like 100% equities or you know whatever 100% growth I, I couldn't explain to him why you would have 10% in bonds or going off that. Like, and, and then you've just answered it with a risk-adjusted return. Yeah. There isn't much. So what does, that, what does that actually mean? Yeah. It, it means that when, when you start to invest, you, you have a few choices to make. Can you just square out that yeah. microphone? So when, when you're starting to invest, you've got a few choices to make. You can say, I want to beat the market, which means you've got to pick a market and then do something different. And sometimes it will work and sometimes it won't. Or you can say, I don't care, I just want the highest return. In which case you go for your 100% type return. Or you can say, I'm going to take sufficient risk in order to be able to achieve my goal. And that is, um, you know, there's a trade-off there. You've got, there's three things you can vary when it comes to investing. You can vary how much you put in, you can vary how much you're prepared, how long you're prepared to wait, then you can vary the return you need. And if you don't put in enough or aren't have enough time, you've got to take more risk. And most people have a tolerance for risk or lack of tolerance for risk, depending on who we're talking about, 
And, you know, should you always take the maximum risk you can bear? Um, you might be able to tolerate the risk of jumping out of an aeroplane with a, mm. a um, parachute. That doesn't mean you should do it every day, but you have the ability to to deal with that. And that's the same thing when it comes to investing. Um, and we the risk when we come to talk about investing is the probability of achieving your goal. So if you say, I'm going to invest $100 a week and I want to end up with $50,000 in five years' time, yeah. that will back calculate what return you need and all returns come with variability. So if I put some money in the bank or I buy a 30-year government bond paying 2%, I know for sure I'm going to get 2% for the next 30 years. If I buy a share, I think that on average I'm going to get eight and a half to 10, but some years it's negative 10 or negative 20. Some years it's plus 50, and we never know in advance what we're going to get. So the concept of diversification is to try and dampen down that variability Mm. without giving up too much return. And so 10 or 20% in... in, uh, Defensive assets helps to dampen it without giving up too much return. I'm a big fan of smoothing out my returns. Smoothing's good. Really? Yes. I reckon, I mean, if you ask me, would you rather a smooth eight or a clunky 10? Mm. I'd take the clunky 10 every day of the week. But But that goes back to your own risk appetite and understanding of education, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or understanding of investment concepts and education. And, and most people whose only experience of investing is the last decade or so would generally jump to that conclusion mm. because they don't have the lived experience of the noughts you know, from 2000, 2009. Where How old are you, nothing. Luke? 29. You're 29. See, I'm 37 and maybe I would have said that under 30. Yeah. Not sure. Probably. I don't know. But I think... This is what goes back to like everyone out there in investing land who's like really keen to invest and they're like, no, that's BS. I don't have any defensive in my portfolio. I, you know, I have these ETFs or these stocks. It's like statistically you suck at investing anyway because you've chosen these ETFs or whatever. You've got no strategic asset allocation guide that you're using. The more I think about it, it's like, there's nothing wrong with just a one-stop Vanguard diversified growth fund. Pump that, go back to being a plumber. Pump that, go back to being a marketing assistant. Like, I, and this is the problem in my life. I'm a podcast host. I'm a media dude now. Like, I just want to pump my portfolio, let it rebalance quarterly and get on with my life. Mm. Yeah. And you've got to look That's not the- fun. Well, yeah, should investing be fun? Um, well, if you want fun, go to the racetrack of the casino. Mm. Investing should be boring. Mm. And I like, I like boring when it comes to my investing. Um, but I think the, the point I think I was trying to get to at that was that you can choose between better returns, which are as in you've added an, a, enough balance in your portfolio to get to a higher return at the right level of volatility or you've just cranked the return up. So you've got to choose between better and higher returns. 
and I'll take better any day. You know, it'd be interesting. I know we're um, planning on maybe doing some work with beta shares and Vanguard. I mean, I'll take anyone's money who's got decent products, <laughs> you know. Um, it'd be interesting to see the rationale and I'll ask them when I, you know, hopefully sit down with them, like with BetaShare and their DHHF fund, I think, where they don't have an allocation to defensive. And yeah, I'm just interested, like, because part of the reason why I do like the one-stop portfolios, because at least they've got some science based on something in the background. Like we know over the long term, you know, we believe a portion of this to that, portion of this to that gives us a smooth return and this portfolio should do what it's cut out to do. Yeah, but there's nothing to stop you buying DHHF and 10% of IAF. Which is the Australian... Australian government bonds. Right. Prime bonds. So, I mean, Vanguard actually have quite a good analysis of this on their asset allocation white paper, which is good reading for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And... I guess that beta shares have seen the marketing and go, well, all these guys are bitching and moaning about the 10% bonds in in VDHG, so why don't I do something without the bonds and capture that market? Yeah. So I can't fault that as marketing. Does it make you good investing? Well, maybe not. Mm. But they're not necessarily saying this is the only thing you should buy. But also they've made a view and they've hung their hat on it, mm. which is fine. I've got I've got a couple of questions just just follows follow up from that with with the say defensive say a ten percent or whatever allocation to it twenty percent allocation to it is that is it only in your investing is it is it say the 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 mum and, mum and dad or whatever that have you know an ab trade or a comsec account or something and they've got say they just had a, a VAS whatever yeah. ETF or VDH sorry not VDH a VAS mm. ETF in it. Is it is it only are you only talking about or only looking at that um, investment portfolio, or are you, are you talking about them as a whole? Have they got a little bit of house? They got a bit yeah. of that. They got some cash on the sideline. Like, is it is it looking at it as a whole picture or just that snapshot? I mean, it depends on where you come from. So, if you're an equities fund manager, all you care about is the equities component. As a financial advisor, we would look at the whole person. So, yeah, are they? Are they a bond or a share themselves? You know, do they are they mm. self-employed? Do they run a small business? In which case, they're probably more equity-like. Or are they a um, you know, government government official who's got a, a long-term stable job? In which case, their work is more like a bond. Yeah, and that should play into it. You know, do they have? Are they geared to the gazoos in real estate? Mm. In which case, they might actually need to be a bit more defensive. Mm. So you really do need to look at it. But most product providers provide a product for one particular silo in it and you need to work out which silo you want to be in. Well, I, I've used this parallel before and I did a My Millennial Express podcast and someone's like, oh, I've got $50,000. I I don't really need it for the next four years, for example. And you're like, well, you technically probably don't want to overcommit it to equities, but you what if you invested half of it into equities and kept the half in cash? But then you you kind of walk down this garden path where it's like, well, what am why don't I just use a fund that's a 50-50 one-stop shop fund, which has the same outcome? So I think it does go back to the personality. I think it does go back to the person. I mean, my 
personal offset account um, against my home has got cash on there. So, Glenn James probably is sitting cash heavy in his life, but I see that as opportunity fund. I yeah. see that as comfort because I'm self-employed. I I just I think it does go back to the person, but I think I want to say like I can come across as confident and arrogant and all that stuff and I've had all the complaints so you don't really? have to yeah you don't have to <laughs> remind me that I'm an arrogant Surprise asshole. Me. Yeah. I know guys, I know. It's all right, save your emails. But I will say my whole remit for this podcast and particularly these campfire chats I don't care what anyone else does with their money. Once you're educated and you understand the concepts and then put your own money in, like hang your hat on your own choice. And if you can't hang your hat on your own choice, go to the one-stop shop who has the asset allocation. Go to a financial advisor. Like it'd be like going to your friend's bucks party or something. May have happened in a city at some point in my life. (laughs) And you end up at the casino and strolling to the roulette table and throwing $100 down and losing it and being really upset that you lost $100, well, no, you should have known that outcome to a point that there's potential loss on the table, a real loss. Your principal is at risk when you go to the casino. Absolutely. It's, the casino isn't government guaranteed. I don't know what I'm getting at, Luke, but you vibe me. We've mm-hmm. just got to understand all this stuff. I like it. I like I like breaking in with the, all the all the questions going on. Yeah, but I think that's the difference between um, the theoretical of what a portfolio should look like if you're the Harvard endowment to what um, what's right for an individual. Yeah, yeah, and I would probably say, like. Everybody sees the world differently. Everybody experiences the world differently. If you're listening to this and you're listening it just to get a gotcha moment out of Glenn James and all that stuff, I'd probably say not everyone is like you. And I, I'm not an academic person. I can't, I'm not an engineer. I'm not an actuary. I can't manage my portfolio to a textbook. Like, and in truth, most people can't. Thank you. Yeah, and that's a good example. But if you are that way inclined... Can host a podcast there. Oh, yeah, I might yeah. be able to host a podcast. Um, but if you are that way inclined, and this is probably a lesson for all of us because I've been thinking about this, guys, lately. And, you know, there's something Don't, in that for all of us. Yes. Like, I'll, I'll go there, but, like, don't put your, the way you do something over someone else. And expect and then get upset and try and fight them online. Like the amount of times I write stuff online and then it's just like, you know what? Delete, I'll down the delete <laughs> button. It's like, I'm just not going there because it's not my job to convince other people. My job's just to facilitate a chat around yeah. our investing. Which is probably hard to do though as well when they when some people ask for an opinion on something. So mm. You can only speak from your own experience and yeah. it's like suddenly they just they change their whole – it's a course correction for them um, to, you know, to, to go and because you said it was and it's – yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's – so I don't know. Like we just have to understand um, risk profiles. We need to understand asset allocation. We need to understand that if investing is your side hustle, you want to make sure you're bloody good at it. Mm-hmm. Otherwise – 
go and get another side hustle. And this is my whole thing. Like, sure, if you've got a personal interest with investing, maybe carve out 10% of your portfolio for the speckies. Mm. Knock yourself out, but don't put everything on the line. And understand where academic stops and life begins. Mm. Because when you mix humans and probability, we just don't do it very well. And that's one of the great value adds from what an advisor Mm. can do is to divorce that. Just on that, Vince, there was a question in the Facebook group and... What was her name? Erin King. Erin, yeah. Yeah, so I'm really bad at reading. Uh, I stopped reading after I read my nine and a half hour audio book or whatever it was, but (laughs) I'm going to read this question because I added to the comment, Erin, you're probably a really good candidate to see a financial advisor. And this is what she wrote with respect if you don't want me to say stuff on the podcast, don't put it in the podcast. Uh, don't put it in the Facebook group. <laughs> Just that it's a PSA, everyone. If you put anything in the Facebook group and you don't want it on the podcast, put it at the end of it in brackets like not for podcast. Hashtag not for podcast. Yeah. How simple can my investing and money growth journey be? Since joining this group, I've learned a lot, but also I've learned that I find learning and tracking the stock market very, very boring. Amen, sister. Mm-hmm. Is it enough for a single 45-year-old woman to have a decent job, permanent public service, no intention to get out, paid off half a house, which is worth about 450K, it's in a good area, and she's got 50K-ish in the offset, 100K-ish in super um, with no extra contributions. You know, there's another 15K for savings, got a bit of hex debt, and she lives an otherwise frugal life. And I'll get back into the thing now. I'll I'll learn a bit to get some blue chip shares, but is that enough? Or does the world require a lot more proactive investment now and more risky slash growth investment on my part to be in a better position when I'm old? I'm so bored by the financial world. I have an arts management background. I'd rather read Shakespeare and analyze poetry and sculptures than learn about the stock market. But I want to be safe and secure and healthy as I grow old, am I doing enough to be okay? Like, can you think of a better candidate who is switched on in life generally? Like, I read that and go, just killing it. Yep. Wants to look for the future, wants to make sure she's looked after, doesn't really care for the day-on-day tracking. I mean, I can't think of a better profile to see a financial advisor and lean into the process. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that I see a lot of is people who start down that journey and get a little bit of knowledge and a little bit of interest and, you know, take out, open a CompSec or a self-wealth or a superhero account and buy a few things. And then life gets in the way and nothing happens for six months and then there's another flurry of activity and then nothing happens for 18 months or two years. That's a very unsatisfactory outcome both for the person doing it because they've 
don't necessarily feel like they're getting the right outcome. And it takes a lot of effort to be consistent. So Erin is, a, as you say, a perfect candidate. Um, investing isn't meant to be fun and exciting. If you want fun and excitement, go to the casino mm. or the racetrack or buy some Bitcoin. Mm. If you want to um, um, look after your future and get on with life, that's what advisors do. Um, and a, an advisor that looks after people like you is the best way to solve that problem. I know you'll get a lot of hate in Facebook groups about paying money to advisors, but yeah, if, you, if you're not going to be consistent and put the time and effort into learning a lot, learning a little is almost worse than learning nothing. It's like me when someone says, talk to me about, like I had a, someone call me the other day, there. it was my friend's mum and she's like, oh, my mum's about to go into, she's got to go to aged care. I'm like, look, I know enough about aged care to be very dangerous. I can tell you some broad concepts, but you need to hang up the phone right now. <laughs> like, and it is that, isn't it? Like, I feel like that's good. I feel like you've gone past that point of no, you only know a little bit about it to just th- throw it away. Mm. I feel like, I feel like sometimes, like say that perceived versus actual knowledge. Mm. When you when you learn something, you you know you drink from the fountain of knowledge and you you learn it. You think you actually only know a little bit, but you think you know everything about it. And it's not until you just continue learning about that same topic mm. that you realise how many how many more things there are to learn within it. And and you know your actual knowledge has gone up, but it's you, there's still so much more to go. And the ad you're about to hear that we played in every podcast episode is don't get financial advice from a podcast nor from a Facebook group because, you know, if Erin was reading that conversation that we had in that other Facebook group, <laughs> that's overwhelming. <laughs> and and meaningless for most people. And meaningless for most people. Like, I'm of the view where, and I've said this before, I'm not expecting my equities portfolio to quote unquote make me rich, to quote unquote to to be the problem solving thing in my life. My superannuation and my equity portfolio and my trust in my investment bond, I park money there that I don't need today that has the best shot of growing for the Glen of tomorrow. Like, I really think if you want to get rich, it's not by buying an index fund and working out do I, how much VAS do I have and how much VTI or whatever the bloody acronym is this week. It's not about that. It's like my investing is parking surplus cash to grow for the longer term that will beat inflation. Let's so see. having worked out that that's actually what you want to do, that's mm. a huge leap forward rather than going, mm. I want to get the best possible return. Yes. Or I want the highest risk-adjusted return or I want the lowest volatility. None of those are meaningful in the context of I want to achieve a goal and I want to solve the problem. The biggest problem we face as humans today is how do I make 40 years of income last for 80 years of adulthood. And I'm probably a huge normie 
But I know that conceptually, me investing in shares or parking money in a diversified growth portfolio, I know conceptually that over the long term, it will beat cash and beat inflation. That's it's pretty simple. Hmm. Almost all of the time. Almost, yeah. Uh, here's the ad we're talking about right now. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com, click get help, and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers, and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we're back. Vince. Clint. You've got a bit of an announcement. I do. Um, and Luke, I'm going to throw this over to you. That's yours. You can keep that. Thank you. What does it say at the front and what is it? Live the life you want with the money you have. The Money Handbook for a New Generation. Vince Scully, the author. Hey, uh, that man. So, congratulations, Vince, on um, on a title. I right. mean, this is, I mean, compared to my book, this is pretty light. It is. Is it comprehensive enough? It's shorter. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's about, I think it's got about two-thirds the number of words, um, but it's not a, it's not a size game. It's not. Um, bigger isn't necessarily better, but it, it focuses on, um, and the title I think says it all. That um, you know, living the life you want with the money you have is about two things. One, it's about working out what you do want, and we actually spend a fair bit of the book working out what you want, what you really, really want. <laughs> oh, I just cringed, everyone. <laughs> you, you got the Spice Girls illusion there, um, and then the second bit is then aligning your money to give you that. Um, and so it recognises that the world has changed and hence the new generation thing. So what got your parents where they where they got to isn't going to get you there. And in fact, what got you here isn't going to get you there either. Mm. And we need to have a plan that reflects the fact that we live in a changed world. And um, that's what the book's about. So I'm looking at the book, uh, well over 200 pages. It's a good size. It's a good vibe. Uh, some of the contents, uh, introduction, the latte fallacy. Um, just, I'll, I'll go through these different chapters and then I want you to just, I'm going to pick a couple of these and you can unpack them. 
And sure, Vince hasn't paid for a uh, a spot to sell the book, but we're going to sell it, everyone. <laughs> we're going to sell it. Um, introduction, the latte fallacy. Step one, spend less than you earn. Step two, build an emergency stash. Step three, pay off your debts. Step four, prepare for the unexpected. Step five, get the super basics right. Ooh, is that a play on words? Ooh, we'll have to see. Step six, get your paperwork straight. Step seven, buy and pay off your home. Ooh, scandalous. <laughs> Step eight, invest your surplus. And that was kind of like what I was just talking about. I'm in a fortunate enough position to have all my expenses met, to live a life that is comfortable <laughs> and have leftover money after being a generous giver. What, what else is there? That's right. So, I'm now investing the surplus. <laughs> Um, the conclusion, the eight steps in practice. What's the latte fallacy? Well, the latte fallacy is the notion that the difference between success and failure with money is how much you spend on coffee or smashed avocado or Uber, that all of these small expenses is not what matters. So it's not about thousands of tiny decisions agonised over. It's about a handful of big ones. Mm. And the six that I talk about in the book are um, where you live, what you drive, how you prepare for the unexpected, how you prepare for retirement, who you marry and how you make a living. And if you get those six right, um, the rest will fall out. So rather than counting the pennies and letting the pounds take care of themselves, you actually work out a handful of pound decisions and you don't have to worry about all the pennies then. Mm. There's actually a great quote on the back of the book. (laughs) This book is the antidote you need for any financial confusion in your life. I know you will succeed after reading this. And that was by Glenn James from the My Millennial Money podcast. (laughs) So we'll put a link in the show notes if anyone wants to buy Vince's book. I will say I'll fight you in the street if you don't buy mine and Vince's together. <laughs> I'll fight anyone in the street. So, so you I, need to buy three copies of mine to weigh the same as Glenn's. Exactly. That's my secret to selling more books than Glenn. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it really is um, a good book. And thanks, Vince, for always giving your knowledge freely to the, the podcast and for about $24 in the book. Yeah, if you pre-order by... 29th of the month, it's 20% off. And Glenn has an affiliate link to Booktopia and Amazon, which you can use. That's right. And this podcast, don't know if we'll get up before then, but whatever, <laughs> we'll try and make it happen. <laughs> but it's yeah. still a bargain after that. That's right. So buy Vince's book, but also don't don't be a dog and uh, buy mine as well. <laughs> buy mine as well. Buy both together and save on shipping. Totally. Absolutely. Buy mine or I'll fight you. <laughs> so good. Uh, Luke. Yeah. When we did the live event in Sydney uh, in December, I think it was, you said to Vince, oh, I've got a question. And I'm like, shut up. Let's get you on a campfire chat. What was the vibe of your question? It was all around – I can't remember it all. I think everyone had a few too many beers. But um, (laughs) it was around intrinsic value, Um, just qualitative and quantitative sort of assessment of business. Um, and, you know, relative or absolute valuation, that sort of thing for, for most people. And, mm. and, and, and uh, yeah. So, so this is the question about 
when I see a company, how do I know what it's worth? Yeah. So how do I know that Afterpay is worth $103 a share? Don't you mean block? Or square? Block? Square, what, what block, do they call block. it? What do, they did change it to. From, uh, it, yeah. Yeah, do I think it? it's called block. No, uh, isn't it? Jack Dorsey, wasn't it? Cube. No, no, let's let's just do it. And this is, it's an example how we're just not single stock guys here. Um, <laughs> um but the, the question around how do square? I work out... Square? Well, it was called Square and they've rebranded it. But yeah, I it's think block. it's called Block. It's Block. Yeah, okay. yeah. yeah, Jack Dorsey's the CEO. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, and when you've got to think about, well, what am I buying when I buy a share? I'm actually buying a small sliver of a set of cash flows. And the cash flows are broadly the difference between company's revenue and its profit. And so I'm buying a very small sliver of that. And my share is determined by the number of shares on issue. And so the question is, what is that cash flow worth? And its value will depend on um, how certain it is. So a business that's a stable business like a a gas utility. So I'm going to buy... Um, AGL or um, uh, an electricity company like um, here's a listed Australian Origin Origin, Origin. their utilities so they got stable cash flows regulated by the government demand is pretty constant there's not a lot of competition and the prices are regulated by the government so that's a business um, that would have stable-ish revenues and hence would generally be worth a larger multiple of that free cash flow. The other thing you look at is how fast is this cash flow stream growing? So if I look at um, Facebook before its recent plum, it was growing very quickly, whereas... An airport or a gas company is going to grow at you know, GDP plus a bit of inflation and population, whereas a Facebook can grow really quickly or an Afterpay. You know, Afterpay five years ago was a tiny company. It ended up being a top 20 company. So people will pay more for a cash flow that's growing faster. Can I just jump in and add one thing there? Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day. Everyone goes bonkers when they're like, Oh, but you know, you say no single stocks. You know, afterpay, afterpay. It's like for every unicorn that went into stratospheric growth, there's probably two hundred that you haven't heard of. And the purport, the proportion of companies. Uh, there's a really good paper on this, which I can't remember off the top of my head, which are that the number of companies in the history of the S and P five hundred that outperform the risk free rate is actually very small. So you do have to find the unicorn or the miracle one. Yep. So, so we talk about um, stability, growth, reliability. Um, market sentiment is obviously a, another one. Um, so some things are in, in favour. So buy now, pay later had a huge int- level of interest and um, we find that uh, you know, when electricity, vehicles came along, then lithium stocks were the flavour of the month. So people will pay more for fashionable stocks. And 
the other thing you would look at is how resilient that business is. So Warren Buffett or the value investors will talk about a, what they call a moat. So what's the moat that prevents this business being cannibalized? So in the case of Afterpay, it was its um, agreements with all those retailers. So all these retailers have bought off on the Afterpay story and they're on this drug so they can't really stop doing it. So that would be an example of a good moat. Um, or Commonwealth Bank, it's got a huge position as being Australia's dominant bank, which reduces its cost of capital, which means it could be more profitable. So all of those things would go to that. But market sentiment is a pretty key one. Um, now, there was a lot of higher, better, lower type words in there. It's because this is not a science. So first of all, I got a forecast to set of cash flows. And then secondly, I have to go and say, well, how would I value that cash flow? Um, and so people estimate a thing called a discount rate, which means we say that a dollar next year is worth less than a dollar this year, and the difference being the discount rate, which is usually derived from the risk-free rate, which is government 10-year bonds, and some sort of equity premium, plus some sort of adjustment for the business. So all of that sounds a lot more scientific than it really is. And then we get into companies that have no profits. So how do I value... Was Tesla back in the day? Yeah, well, Tesla still. Yeah. I mean... Um, well, at least they're moving product. Yeah. And so, yeah, this was started to become a big deal in the late 90s because until the late 90s, most people took the view that, well, to value a company, I need some profits. So I used multiples like price-to-earnings ratio, EBITDA multiples, um, whereas in the late 90s, people started thinking, well, actually, maybe I should value this based on the number of users. And we started to get some really crazy ones. And so trying to estimate what a Tesla might or might not be worth is not a science. You can apply an awful lot of ifs and buts. I mean, I saw some analysis um, on Google and Facebook about two or three years ago, and their valuation sort of assumed that they were going to have 100% of the advertising market in five years' time. Is that ever going to happen? Probably not. So is Tesla being valued on having a huge share of an ever-growing vehicle market? Yeah, like why is it worth more than most of the other auto manufacturers put together? So just a question on this intrinsic value. I think it's important to step back and just to, un like if there are any people who are new to investing and whatnot listening – you know, you might buy a $600 pair of Tom Ford sunglasses, right? Did somebody here do that? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was closer to $750. <laughs> but, um, but the actual value of those sunglasses mm -hmm. with the plastics and the maybe you might include a bit of the IP for the design or like it might only be... $60 worth of equipment or stuff, maybe even less. So the actual value of the raw materials and, you know, some design, you know, the actual solid value is not $700 or whatever, right? When it comes to companies 
And when we talk about intrinsic value, and that was one of the things with Bitcoin, there's no real intrinsic value where gold there is because I can use gold parts of the components to make my watch mm-hmm. and other microchips. So there is actually an inherent utility, utility, yeah. utility of that. When it comes to companies, individual stocks and valuing them, in terms of intrinsic value, are we actually saying the forecast growth versus a discount rate and all that soft stuff, does that count as intrinsic value or is it literally like when someone wants to sell the local fish and chip shop, we're like, well, it's pretty much worth the stock at value, Mm -hmm. really. If we can get an extra... 40 grand for some goodwill, that's cute, but it's actually worth 40 grand yeah. or and, whatever. And that's the sort of analysis you could do when you've got a, a real business. Mm. So um, so people would look at what they call the price to book ratio, which is, well, what's the price of this share relative to the book value of the underlying assets? So I'm looking at a bank or a regulated utility. That's a good way of looking at it. So you say, well, what's the... Um, What's the underlying value of these assets? You know, what I'd get if I broke it all up and what premium am I prepared to pay for the goodwill or the value of the customer base that goes with that? So if I'm looking at a bank, um, you know, most banks would trade historically at a small premium over book. So their loan book plus a bit of premium. Um, Australian banks trade on very high multiples as a general rule. Um, which probably reflects partly their um, dominance of the local market, the lack of competition, the value of the franking credits. There's a whole bunch of reasons why an Australian bank might be worth more than an American bank. Um, Or a regulated utility where the regulator says, this is the regulated asset base that we're going to allow you to earn a return on. So they typically sell for 1.1, 1.2 times regulated asset base. That's an intrinsic analysis. Whether it gives you any better answer or not is is another matter, but at least Mm. you have the comfort of knowing that, well, if it did fall over, I could always sell the underlying assets and get something back for it. Here's a question probably for Luke, just to throw randomly. As a retail investor, I, I don't need to care about intrinsic value. And you might say, well, I like picking stocks. And then I'd probably say, okay, you're a retail investor hobbyist. And I think it goes back to like, well, what are we doing here with our investing? For sure. Like I reckon, say say like, you know, what you were saying before, you, you call satellite or, or mm. whatever. And from your satellites, you know, it might be 10% of your, your net worth or something like that you're throwing into individual shares. But then it's, it's more than just that's the hot share at the moment. It's like, why am I investing in that? And am I going to be able to buy it with, going back to probability, some level, you know, some some level of high probability that I won't do my ass in on that stock. And I think, you know, call call the stock market a whole a whole warehouse of underlying probabilities and mm. different equations. And I feel like you've got to try and pick the most obvious or known things that that you have within your disposal to to use and I feel like intrinsic value or a discounted cash flow analysis is one of those things that is is not highly predictable but in that in that warehouse of probabilities it probably is 
one of those things you can u- utilize. Um, yeah. yeah. But where are you going to get the cash flow information? You're probably going to rely on some analyst consensus view and he goes, well, do I, as you know, Glenn, the podcast host, know more than 50 analysts on Pitt Street analysing this stock all day, every day? I'm going out on a limb to say no. Hmm? <laughs> I probably don't know. Yeah. Um, I mean, you do have the advantage that you don't have the incentive to put a buy mm. recommendation on it that they do because that's mm. how they make a living. Um, so you'll find very few analysts will put a outright sell on something, especially if their investment banking colleagues on the next floor are trying to organise the next um, capital raise. So it's very difficult to get better information than the market has um, if you're talking about a long-term punt. Having a guess as to what it's going to do in the next 10 minutes is a little easier. So if you're trying to take a trading position and in a, if you're taking a trading position, it doesn't really matter whether Tesla's overvalued or undervalued. All that matters is what's it going to do today? And taking that punt's a much different story. So it's quite rational for some investors to take a view that Tesla is going to go up tomorrow and others take a view that it's overpriced. Those two positions are entirely consistent because a trader, all you want to know is what's it going to do today or tomorrow. Hmm. If I'm the Harvard endowment, I sort of want to know what it's going to do in the next 10 years. If I'm saving my super, I probably want to know what it's going to do in the next five or 10. I was also thinking the other day, like as an investor – like, do I need more than market returns? And there's that risk in itself of going down the active route. Mm. There's an extra risk there yes. that you might not get market. So, and you're paying extra for that risk with management fees and whatnot. Or time. Or time. So, yeah, I just think this whole investing thing, we need to change our mindset from I'm, I'm, I'm hanging all my hopes and dreams on this to make my life complete where it needs to be. I'm happy to just park money for the long term and let the market do its thing. Yeah. There's no doubt that you can outperform market Mm. and over lengthy periods by taking more risk than the market. So Mm. if I simply, which is why a lot of these um, ethical tech funds have done so well, that what have they done? They've just taken a subset of the market being growth assets and said, well, we think they're going to, or they happen to outperform, whether that was premeditated on the question, but that's a different risk profile than the market as a whole. Mm. So you will get a different answer. Sometimes it'll be different good, sometimes it'll be different bad. Mm. And you need to be able to stay the course through lengthy periods of different bad. Mm. There's and most people don't. Yeah. Should we move on to mm-hmm. some other questions? I don't know if that even answers your thing, Mate, it, Luke, but whatever. I, I'm pretty sure I was reading a book at the time and it was just like, it, it just it popped into my head with that and it was it was all to do that. Say you were saying before with the subset um, of the market, like, so, well, you know, say, well, I don't know, that ARC fund or whatever yeah. it was, how you're doing that sort of thing. But 
even like uh, it was the book was called it was by Robert Hagstrom, the Warren Buffett way maybe, right? I think, yep. and it, it was all to do with you know that way of thinking. So it just perked my mind. I was like, I'll mm. ask these guys a question because I was at the podcast that week or yeah. whatever. Yeah. But um, yeah, like, and it, and it goes off say say like a active fund manager that might hold. 150 stocks or something and they're only you know net net they might just beat the market but then after after you know expenses or fees or whatever it, it might net out that less less than the market or whatever but the the less stocks that they own or the more concentrated the portfolio the, obviously the more volatile it will be but just yeah, the standard deviation was huge between returns. Um, so if you're trying to fund a fund that is more likely to outperform, there's a few things you can look for. One is a high active share, which means they have a portfolio that's wildly different to the market, and usually that means a small number of high conviction positions. Secondly, you need a you want to look for a fund that's got um, a high ownership by the fund manager. Usually, that means they're young, smaller companies, which adds a whole different element of risk. And then thirdly, that there's a, um, you know, a relatively straightforward fee structure. I had um, on the podcast a couple of months ago, I think, Kate Howitt, who was the fund manager of the Fidelity Australian Opportunities Fund. Mm-hmm. And I'm just looking it up. Um, still, as at the end of February, over a seven-year period, after fees, they were still one and a half percent in front of the market. Yeah. So the the question is, yeah, the question isn't can you beat the market. The question is, are you happy to take on the risk that you might not beat the market for an extra percent? Yeah. Or work out what the methodology of beating the market is, because mm. the only real way to beat the market is to take more risk. Mm. And so, what is that? risk that you're taking, um, you know, value funds are the classic example that all the academic research says that value funds should outperform growth funds over lengthy periods, but they've gone, you know, decades without outperforming. Mm. Mm. But over time, they will. Mm. There's a question here from Neil uh, Alexander, who, Neil Benson, his name is, he's the Lego man pros and cons of the available options for investing for kids. Um, start with, should you even bother? Now, Luke, you're a young stallion and you've mm-hmm. got a wife and I don't okay. want to be presumptuous about your family planning, mm-hmm. but regardless of your personal situation, like what's your vibe on the whole investing for kids, be it nieces, nephews, yeah, what it's... you might do in the future if you do go down that road? Yeah, it's a funny one. We don't we don't have um, kids as of as of yet. Um, Mads is talking about it for the obviously future planning and that sort of thing. But I don't have money aside for nieces and nephews. Sorry, uh, sorry to them if you uh, listen one day. But no, um, yeah, I don't know. Like the whole in, you know investment bond or whatever. I, I don't know. I I think just accruing our sort of plan would be to accrue as you know as much personal wealth from um, that and maybe you know one day the, the kids will just inherit it or something like that or or part thereof or you know whatever I don't have any sort of structure at the moment and I, that could change that's subject to change 
about, you know, anything tactical to be like, you know, accruing wealth in a tax-free environment or, or low-tax environment or whatever for kids or mm. anything like that, yeah. What do you usually say to parents of, or like, so your clients who are like, hey, we want to invest for the kidlets? I mean, as, a, as an empty nester, I'd probably have a, have a horse in this race. Um, what, it does surprise me. You need to freaking fix this Wi-Fi in this room as well. <laughs> about do you, to, need, you need to focus and not play on your computer. No, I'm getting questions and it's like, <laughs> Facebook's disconnected. Um, that it does surprise me that it's almost a natural instinct that when people find that they're pregnant or leave the labour ward, suddenly think, oh, I should set some money aside for this infant who you've got no idea what the rest of their life's going to look like. So I would say to a lot of people that the best thing you can do for this child is to you know, pay off your home and save for your retirement and help them get a good education. Handing over a dollop of cash on their 18th birthday doesn't strike me as being a particularly um, value-adding exercise. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for potentially helping your kids into the housing market, um, but I don't think that has to be at 18 or 21. But if you can get them you know, well-adjusted, healthy to adulthood without too many hang-ups, I think that's probably enough. And um, you know, if you can get there with your home paid off and your retirement prepared for mm. and healthy, happy kids... Yeah, the more I kind of, and I don't have a foal in this horse race. <laughs> um, time, there's still time. I yeah, I just think I'm a I'm a put your mask on first before helping yeah. others. And yeah, if if you were just investing and doing good in your own life, and as you said, Vince, if one of the kids needed some help down the track. You've got the option because you're really good with your money mm. to lean over and go, there's 10000 for that uni course or that week-long course that you want to do overseas. Mm. And, you know, it's that whole thing. Like, just because one of your kids needs glasses doesn't mean you have to buy all your kids' glasses. Mm. We, I think we need to get real as a – just with our mindset. And I am totally aware that I don't have children. I think me personally – I would, um, if I talk to my own family, I would just encourage my sister and, you know, the dad of the kids to be financially strong, mm. look after yourself. If you do have surplus cash and if you do want to do something for the kids, we well, don't have to overcook it. We know that we don't want money just sitting in cash mm -hmm. Unless you want to carve out a, a different thing on the offset account hmm. and have it work for you that way. I, I think to Neil's point, should you even bother if you want, but I'm certainly not putting money aside for kids when I've got a bill that I can't afford to pay hmm. in the present. Hmm. Now, I think it's another story if you're a niece, if you've got nieces or nephews and you want to do something kind like I've spoken about before, I've got three investment bonds hmm. and they get, I think, $100 a month per kid into each investment bond. And the reason I've chosen the investment bond is, one, 
my tax, it's categorically yep. cheaper for tax. Mm-hmm. I'm in a fortunate enough position where my tax rate is at the highest. Number two, it's still my money and it doesn't have to go on my personal tax return, mm-hmm. right? So, the good thing is that with the estate planning thing, if Uncle Glenn dies tomorrow, it can go over to them and there's a note on it to say this was intended mm. for this after this age. Now, that's not binding, but at least it's a it's an intention that, hey, Grace, hey, Jeffrey, hey, James, here's a wad of money. You know, it's written here on the schedule that Glenn wanted this to go towards your house mm. after age 25 or something like that. And then three with the investment bond, it still is my money. Mm-hmm. And if I was in a pinch and needed that money for something, guess what? I'm going to use it because it's still my money. And the other side of it is if I, if one of the kids uh, was to turn out to be a little rat bag and ran off and no one ever heard of him or her ever again... Well, I can just take the kid's name off that bond <laughs> and guess what? It's still my money. Yeah. But I think the dynamic of the doting uncle is completely different to the parent. Absolutely. And, yeah. Um, the family finances affect everybody and the fact that you've put some of it over here for 18 years doesn't really change the total pile of assets in the family. And it might actually be better to you know, use that money to pay for education, use that money to pay off the home, use that money to pay for an insurance policy in case you die, use that money to go travelling in Europe, um, use that money to get them started on a, a gap year or to be able to afford to take that low-paid intern job offshore. So, The one thing I'd always – it was easy to talk about this stuff when clients come in and they would say, oh, we've got a goal, we've got t- three kids – and we want to buy an investment property for each kid to set them up. It's easy to say, no, you just buy investment properties for yourself mm-hmm. because in 20 years' time, each property is going to be worth different and it's going to represent a new problem for you yeah. when you're <laughs> wanting to hand properties over. So it does need to go back to just build wealth. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a consensus here. Look, yes, you can set up a share account with a designation to a child and hypothetically if you were to transfer that to their name there is a capital gains tax little exemption which which the, may or may not actually exist that's right i yeah that's a wild one that one mm. and the premise was that if it was transferred over to the kid's name at age 18 the cost base would reset mm. and it's a non-event but yeah what's well, the deal with that one um, I mean, there's a whole bunch of complexities around how that's being held. Um, yeah. Because you're paying the income along the way, yeah. the income tax along the way. Yeah, I mean, if you're arguing that um, the the theory that people used to apply to this was, yeah, what is the form of this holding? Am I acting as trustee or am I acting as some sort of nominee and who actually controls the money. So the analysis was never particularly simple and you, know, you see this in a lot of Facebook and Reddit forums a lot that all you have to do is hold it for the kid, you pay tax on it and the kid gets it CGT free. I'm not never been convinced of that analysis and um, I wouldn't go there. 
Yeah. I think the golden rule is unless it's uh, an investment bond mm. that sits outside of your tax return, yep. it's on you. Yeah. And I was, you know, people talk about having a family trust. They go, sometimes it's better to pay the tax off at 39% than to pay your adult kids 100%. At least you get to keep 61% of it. Absolutely. <laughs> There's a question here, actually. Someone asked about uh, trusts. Where are we? Lots of questions here. And in fact, on that family trust, there's the tradition where you know people used to distribute the money to kids and then take the money back. Um, the, there's been a recent taxpayer alert where the tax office is saying, well, actually, we're going to p- apply Section 100A to this and um, consider it not to have been a distribution. So be very careful what you're doing. As a... We're going to consider it as a loan. Well, as a... Or a payment. An unpaid entitlement. Right. Not to uh, not to hijack the conversation there and suit my own personal agenda, but go, going... Sorry, oh, while, while that, you, that's what you're yeah, here for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this is your show. Well, well, your agenda is my agenda. <laughs> we, I don't know if Nate can cut and edit or whatever, put it in a different spot, but... Ah, leave go, it in or whatever. Going back to, um, like, say, say businesses and, and asset allocation... Mm. With the uh, you know with the business where you were saying before like a utility like a mm. origin an AGL compared to a bank compared to you know the hottest bloody you know, uh, whatever stock mm. has come on the market does that like there's so much diversification within different businesses mm. itself does it need like do, doesn't that won't one business prosper Prosper while another fails, sort of thing. Is, do you need the do you need the bond component there? It, it, some businesses a lot more defensive, like your constant flows of cash, than your other ones that aren't producing yeah. cash yet. So, so, in our portfolios at LifeShipper, we allocate some of our equities allocation to infrastructure, and in infrastructure, we talk about core infrastructure, which is really roads, railways, power stations, um, pipelines, not. Um, data centres and childcare centres, but you know, traditional core infrastructure. And they tend to be less volatile than equity generally. So they have a form of defensiveness that we can do that. Didn't work particularly well um, in the COVID crash. When no one's driving on toll when, roads. Yeah, when toll road traffic went fell through the floor, when airports were practically closed, where electricity demand fell because factories were closing. So these are all relative things. No, there are no guarantees in this game, but um, they call them low beta stocks, that is stocks that move around less than the market, yeah. which tend to... So utility is a very good example, um, and that uh, does give you a little bit of comfort. Yeah. Unfortunately, in the 2020 plummet... Um, both real estate and infrastructure did worse than the market as a whole mm. um, because obviously everyone was up, unsure about what was the future of retail, what was the future of offices. Um, people yep. stopped driving to work on toll roads. People stopped running factories, so demand for power fell. So there are no absolute guarantees, but in most cases that's generated a bit of buffer. Mm. Yeah. Um, 
Are you going to have dinner with us after this? Mm. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So you, have a schnitty you, at you the union, right? Yeah, yeah no. you don't have I've a heart out. I've got no time. No, nah, because we've got a few questions I want to yeah. get through. Go for it. Um, You're going to have a schnitty at the union. So there's a there's a question here, and we might lead it into this whole trust debate. Mm-hmm. And said, when's the time to purchase a property to run your business out of uh, lease first own? Industrial, commercial, space for your own business, also pros and cons of throwing it under a trust. I mean, there's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack. Um, I mean, the problem with businesses owning real estate is that the return on the real estate is generally lower than the return on the business. So if you're running a business that's um, you know, making you a Twenty thirty percent return on capital. Why would you reallocate some of that capital to a property that's making six or seven? Where it does make real sense is if you're in retail, or maybe you're a doctor, where a lot of the goodwill in your business is in your premises. So if you're a you know, doctor with a surgery in Neutral Bay, and um, your landlord decides that they want to demolish the building, well, a lot of your customers are there because that's their area. So if you have to move a suburb away, you may find you lose some of your customer base. So retail, any of those sort of places where there's walk-in traffic. Well, also cafes. cafes, I mean, your cafe value, for those who have purchased the cafe, it's all in that area, it's all hanging on what your lease says Hmm. because if that lease gets like now we're turning the cafe into now an office suite. Well, what's your business worth now? Yeah. So your Probably landlord stock at value. So your landlord owns most of your goodwill in, mm. in practical terms. Mm. So they're places where it does make sense to control the. Um, I would the real estate if you're if you're running a coffee roastery and you need a warehouse to do that. It probably doesn't matter too much where that warehouse is, mm. and it would probably make more sense for you to invest in the business rather than the premises. Yeah, it is a philosophical thing, and. You know, the thing that I've cautioned uh, business owners with in the past, particularly when they're growing a business and whatnot, and we'll just we'll use it as an electrician, right, or a builder. And I've had this discussion with a friend of mine recently, like, oh, should we buy a business premises and all this? It's like, well, number one, you've been in business 10 minutes. Let's just see if we can meet the hurdle of, um, you know, passing that 75% within five years of small business fail. So... Let's just start there to see if we can make a business out of this thing. Secondly, I don't want you as a business owner to get distracted and have the property wagging the business dog or some analogy like that. Property tail wagging the business dog. Perfect. Um, Because what can happen is you get property fever, you go and buy the premises to operate the business out of, but then what happens is you're kind of hamstrung to that warehouse and you've got to move premises and now there's no retail, there's no demand for someone to rent your your warehouse and it's either empty or you've bought too small a warehouse and you're outgrowing it too fast or you bought too big. So there's a lot of problems there and the shoe just really has to fit like categorically. In terms of um, buying it through a trust, look, I think the, you know, I, I was about to. I haven't told you this, Vince. The I, I, pretty much signed up to buy an off the plan mm-hmm. unit. They called me the other day, 
and said, no deal. We're rescinding all the contracts, blah, 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 walking away uh, for some variety of reasons. I think they've con cotting on to the fact that maybe if we do this in a year's time, we can make an extra million dollars, uh, something like that. I don't know what the thing is, but I was actually purchasing that through my family trust and there's downsides, there's upsides. Number one, um, my family trust is registered for GST. The GST that I would pay on the commercial premises would flow back through, mm-hmm. uh, which is, again, if you're going to sell it, remember. That's, it comes back it'll, the other way. come back the other way. Um, number two, I didn't want it in my own name um, because I don't like for the smaller value that it was. I'm like, yeah, we'll just put it in the in the, the trust. Uh, and I, I was just, for me, in my situation, I wanted uh, the trust to own it. The only other trust structure that I could have considered would have been my superannuation fund, which is a trust structure. The, the cons of doing it not in your own name is your land tax usually starts at zero. So that's uh, a consideration as well. But I think the whole thing around buying a business premises for your business, just make sure, get a million people to just stress test that logic in your life because, you know, Bunnings is a very successful business and they don't own the premises. That's right. <laughs> well, wink, wink. But then again, you know, McDonald's is actually more a real, real estate, estate company than yeah. a burger company and that's fine when you understand real estate. Mm. But just because you can buy a house doesn't mean you know how to buy a warehouse. Mm. So, yeah, be be warned there. Just on the, the trust thing, Australia is a little bit unique with our trust law and our trust setup. Trusts, a couple of things why you might consider a trust to operate your business. First and foremost, a trust is a basically a relationship. <laughs> it's, it's not an incorporated entity. There is what they have is a, a trust deed to say that, hey, there's, a, there's rules that govern the trust and the deed will note who the trustee is. And effectively, that trustee manages assets for the benefit of the beneficiaries. So you can set up a trust to own real property. You can set up a trust to own shares in a company, in your own business. You can set up a trust to open a trading account, a, an investment platform. And the advantages of trust, number one, I don't know how deep you want to go. Like it's good from a litigation point of view if you are carrying extra risk in your life. Mm -hmm. When I had my financial planning business, um, the business was owned by my family trust, which was good. Um, I'm just shooting words here. Do you want to? Yeah. I mean, the big big things, and this is what- Trusts don't pay tax. Yes. Well, they're not taxpayers in their own right- as long as they distribute all of the income. But if they don't. So an ETF is a trust. Yes. And it doesn't pay tax 
because it distributes all of its income to the unit holders. Um, most so-called family trusts tend to be discretionary trusts, which means that rather than having to distribute that income in proportion to the number of units you hold, the trustees just decide who to give it to. And that's very good flexibility in families because you you might want to give more to mum one year and more to dad another year. You might want to distribute it to grandparents or adult children. And um, that flexibility is very valuable. They also attract the capital gains tax discount, which companies don't. And um, there's also less disclosure around who the beneficiaries are. So they've got a lot of attractions from a um, estate planning, asset protection, tax flexibility. But they're really only useful where you actually have some beneficiaries who could you could distribute the income to. So if you are a you know, single dad with two under 18 kids, they're not going to give you an awful lot mm. because you don't have anyone to distribute the income to. Um, if you've got a big family with multi-generational members of a business and you want to be able to flexibly distribute it, yeah, it makes a huge amount of sense. But I think most people who don't run small businesses probably don't need a trust. Yes, unless there's significant wealth. Yeah. Yeah, and this is the whole thing with like online. Like you see someone writing a comment in a Facebook group like, oh, we're starting a trust and we're getting sophisticated. It's like you two PAYG earners and you've probably got a share portfolio of $20,000 not sure if I'm spending 10% to set up a trust. That's right. I mean, I think we've got to get real here as well. And I mean, you obviously have to start somewhere. So you're not going to start with a million dollars. Um, no, but if there was a runway where this is going to ramp up sooner than later, well, you'd probably want to do it from day one yeah. uh, so you don't have, um, you know, some resetting cost bases and mm. and all that to move the assets. Um, I actually know somebody where they've got a significant amount of wealth in the non-working spouse's name, mm-hmm. and I'm talking significant, and they earn significant money. And I was telling this person, I'm like, you are crazy. You need to talk with your accountant Talk with your estate planning lawyer because, man, you've got a drama on your hands if something happened to your wife, for example, like if your wife died mm. prematurely. <laughs> like all day long, there's got to be a, a, a an sale of the assets or something mm. where if it was held on trust and she was a beneficiary and then something, and I'm talking worst case scenarios, and you might think, oh, why is he always harp on about these worst case scenarios? Because I've bloody seen it happen too much. Um, So, in that instance, it was just spot on. And I'm like, look, you need some tax advice. My vibe on the street would be speak with your accountant. Don't contribute any more into the account over there in her name. Just do new money invested via the trust. Yep. 
Right by there. I, look, I can't add heaps to trust. I don't have one. No, it's just the, the same thing, PAYG earners or whatever. But, I mean, I just – I love the simplification of – or, you know, just keeping it simple for investing for mm. long term or whatever. And, you know, your idea of significant wealth might be different to my idea of significant wealth. And who knows when you actually do do really need a trust or, or not. And, you know, in that case, I don't know, you know, who, who you were speaking to or anything, but like what happens, you know, say she did pass away prematurely, then, you know, would it not just, if he was the beneficiary, just be transferred straight back to him or is there a... a well, there was a, there'd be a resetting of the cost base. Like mm-hmm. A CGT event or yeah. something like that. And yeah. then the, well, the question then is, can they actually be in specie transferred somewhere else? Look, I don't know. I just think yeah. when you are dealing with a portfolio in the millions, you probably don't want that on your own tax return yeah. for a variety of reasons. Mm. Yeah. But it does need reasonable sums. So if you yeah. if you've got a hundred thousand dollar portfolio which makes let's say eight and a bit percent a year of which five is income, that's five thousand dollars of taxable income. Mm. If it costs you three thousand dollars to do a set of tax accounts, uh, trust accounts and tax returns, um, you ain't saving money. Now there might be other reasons why you want to do it mm. um, for asset protection, for state planning. But if you think you're doing this to save tax, uh, and that's it, like the, it's the only got, winners it's are the accountants. Com- yeah, that's right. Like in terms of tax, it all comes out in the wash. Yeah. Like if it's in a trust, it gets distributed to you and it ends up on your ITR anyway. Yeah. Like it's not. Or this- you can distribute to a company and pay tax at thirty percent, and you defer the rest of it for a while. That's right. But it's not a permanent difference. It's just a temporary difference. That's right. And you know the the tax office will always come knocking. It's just a matter of time. Hmm. And that's probably a good advantage as well. Like if you, it just gives you, the trust gives you flexibility at the end of the year. So when you're doing your um, your tax planning, you can be like, look, we're going to distribute X amount to this non-income, low-income earning spouse, get them up to 80K, going to move you up to there. And then, you know, there is a significant amount that's coming from business profits or whatever. We'll distribute that to a bucket company. Um and pay tax at the company tax rate of thirty percent. So, yeah, I'm a fan of you know these structures, but you need a reasonable chunk of income to make it worth doing. That's right. Or be in the line of fire, yeah. and you need some estate planning to protect your personal assets, yeah. or have the best shot at protecting yeah. your personal assets. It's not guaranteed. No, but it's better than nothing. Exactly. And for I guess litigation stuff trusts don't fall under the Corpse Act. It's more case law. So it's um, you might have a more handy dog in the fight, but there's pros and cons with everything. Uh, but most people, I wouldn't suspect, need a trust. It can be useful if you're a big property investor because with the new rules around debt-to-income ratios where many banks are drawing a hard line at six, seven, eight times your income, the assets in the trust won't necessarily be counted against your DTI. So this is not a game for amateurs at home, but um, a good broker can help you make the most of that. Luke, in plumbing circles, um, (laughs) (laughs) what do they, like if someone said to you uh, debt recycling, how, how do you explain it? Because 
And this is another kind of, it's a Kool-Aid thing that's online and uh, people are getting knickers in knots and, and all this stuff. Like, what's it mean to you? I, I don't. I've ne- never, ever had that question from anyone I work with or yeah. or associate with. However, however like, um, you know, and to be truthful, I don't really fully understand debt recycling. I, I presume it's trying to make non-deductible debt usually back into deductible debt and, you know, have the wash up from that. But, um, yeah, to explain it to a, to a five-year-old or a colleague, I've never had to and mm. don't plan to. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I think people sort of get confused between debt recycling and gearing, um, and the two are completely different. Um, so, debt recycling is really just about saying, "Look, I've got I've got some cash to invest, and I've got some non-deductible debt. So instead of investing the cash, I should use the cash to pay down my non-deductible loan and borrow the money back to." As a separate quarantined mortgage line item. So my balance sheet doesn't change. There's no additional debt in the in your family. It's just about moving debt from non-deductible to deductible. And therefore, the, the argument that I should be investing in different things because I am debt recycling is complete nonsense because there is no debt. It's the debt you always had, and if you could afford to pay your home loan, you can um, afford to reinvest your dividends. But if your strategy was that I want to um, recycle my debt as soon as possible, you might not, you know, pay down the loan, draw out a separate, and we'll just we'll use some round numbers here. You've got a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage, the house is worth 1.1 mm-hmm. and you've got a hundred grand cash in the bank. So the house value pretty much not worth anything in this instance. The hundred grand cash in the bank, you pay down that loan. Yeah, so your 600 loan becomes 500. 500. We then go to the mortgage broker and say, hi, broker, could you please set me up a second mortgage for one hundred thousand dollars, well, second split on the same split. Yeah, yeah. sorry, um, broker dings. Um, <laughs> so you open your internet banking, and it says home loan one five hundred thousand dollars, home loan two one hundred thousand dollars. So your balance sheet hasn't changed. Hasn't changed. You then draw that one hundred thousand dollars and invest it into equities, mm-hmm. and with the notion of dividends that get paid out of that, you pay down into the home loan. So, And that's a completely different thing than accessing the equity in your property to borrow another 100000 to buy equities. Exactly. Because in that case, your balance sheet does go up. Yeah. So if you then go, okay, well, I want to do debt recycling and I've got equity in the house. Well, why don't we turn this up a notch? So, my line item now says mortgage one, $500,000, mortgage two, $200,000. So, I've, I've now borrowed an extra $100,000. Yes, which is a gearing strategy. Which is, yeah, now leverage because the same way if you were buying a, an investment property, right? So, my question is, if you are doing a debt recycling strategy, your net-net your effect is the same, mm-hmm. 
you will get theoretically and practically, it will be a better tax outcome, mm-hmm. which is good. And you will also have, um, and you, the, the reason you get a better tax outcome is the interest on that $100,000 is now tax deductible. And let's not get carried away with the numbers here. So if you have, if we're talking about $100,000 and you're paying 2.5% on your home loan, your total interest bill that now moves from non-deductible to deductible is 2.5% of $100,000 being $2,500. If you're a 39% taxpayer, the 39% of 2500 is about $1,000. So what you've done by recycling that $100,000 is save yourself $1,000 in tax, which is better than a poking the eye with a sharp stick, but it's not sheep stations. And the thing I would it's call... It's not like when interest rates were 10%. That's right. And tax rate was 47%. The, the thing is, I'm just worried that people basically might do this as a DIY, get their $100,000 and just, or whatever it is, the amount, we'll just use the 100000 for my example, and they go, well, I'm just putting it in the Vanguard Diversified High Growth Fund. I'm like, okay, when it pays quarterly distributions, well, do we need to go to more of a uh, an imputation fund where it's a, a franked dividend yeah. payment? But I would argue that if, if what you're doing is Debt recycling, as opposed to gearing, what you invested in should not be driven by the thought that this is borrowed money, because it's not. Um, one of the biggest problems I see when people try to do this themselves is they go and you know, move house, get a hundred thousand dollars extra, and park it in their offset account. Well, now that you borrow this money to stick in your offset account, it ain't income earning. And if you subsequently withdraw to go and buy your Vanguard VDHG, that ain't deductible, guys. Mm. So the way this cash flow moves is pretty critical and not to be tried on its own. So um, not to be tried without the right advice. Yeah. And you've got to really be careful as well. Like I think these strategies only ever worked, you know, out in the wild was where there was good consistent incomes. <laughs> there was a property and a mortgage that, you know, we weren't leapfrogging and yeah, we're going to be here for two years, then we're going to sell and then go to the next one. We're not refinancing every 10 minutes. Yep. I don't think it's for everybody. And the problem I would have, again, is if we're doing this strategy, whether it is a gearing strategy, whether it is some type of debt recycling strategy, you're not a bloody day trader. Mm-hmm. Get some help, pay for some advice, and have someone do it with you. So yeah, I, I just and this is the problem with you know the financial forums and whatnot. You set one thing wrong up, and you may commit tax fraud and not know it. Mm. And the number of times I see money going into offset accounts and out to debt recycling, which just doesn't work, guys, um, is just huge. Mm. Frustrates me every time I see it. Anything else on your mind, Luke, that's... Um... Mate, nothing, nothing much to add to the debt recycling, but 
I don't know. Every, everything it just seems like there's so many financial instruments that you can pull or choose to choose to use, but they may not be to to the benefit of you. Like it's it's generally it maybe generally to get someone else earning their money instead of you saving money from it. So mm. I don't know. I, I just like a, a pretty simple approach to things: pay down your debt and whatever. And, don't need to optimize that position to, as Vince said, off say 100 grand, you know, 39 percent tax bracket, save you the extra thousand bucks or whatever it is. Like it's, I'm not poo pooing a thousand bucks. I know, I know, but it's not going to change your life. Well, I always look at stuff like this and look at the, um, you know, that's a hard dollar versus my soft costs, and my Mm. soft costs is I've got to do more paperwork Mm. to get it all happening. I've got to collect more stuff throughout the year, and a lot of the time, where it kind of is relative, if $1,000 is a lot of money for you at the moment, like with all the respect and dignity in the world, you're probably not at the stage where this is a strategy that you should be con- that you would be considering anyway, I would imagine. Yep. Because you're just not going to be at a different stage. Now, if you were well established with your career, with your incomes equity in your house and all that stuff and you went and saw an advisor and there was a, a gearing strategy and and remember, when you go and buy your investment property, that's a gearing strategy. A lot of gearing. Very much 80 <laughs> plus percent gearing. There could be some real cash flow and tax benefits <laughs> if you pick the right property as well. Yep. But we're not doing it just to save on tax. So, yeah, and I think you're right, Luke. There's just a lot of information and confusion out there. Um, On a different note, Carolina said she has one about work. If you're going to apply for a higher position within your company, how do you calculate your expected salary? Just an industry benchmark or work upwards from your current salary? So let's do do a scenario. Someone was earning $70,000 a year and they wanted to apply for a higher position. I mean, if you know that the job's advertised, I think you could just ask them. It's like, hey, I already work here. Can you give me some salary guides? I mean, if you work for a big company, you probably know what the rough pay grades are. Mm. So if you're a grade seven, you probably have a fair sense for where in the grade seven you are and you know this job will be graded grade eight or grade nine which will give you a great benchmark. Mm. And most companies will you know, have graded each job and the job will have a range that applies to that job. If you're working for a smaller company or a um, you know, less HR process-driven company, you sort of have this position where your employer knows what you're paid and you know what you're paid and you probably have a reasonable estimate of what this job might be worth on the open market. But whether you're going to get the open market price because your employer is effectively giving you this opportunity to move up to something that you might not get if you applied outside the company because they know who you are mm. and they've got a, a sense that, you know, we know how Glenn works, we know that he understands our systems and processes and he, we know he fits our culture and they'd be prepared to take a punt on you that they might not be prepared to take on 
someone coming in with the same experience as you have. So, got to read the room. And I think as well it's important, like, and I would just encourage um, Carolina, like, it's okay to ask. Hmm. You know, it's business, it's, there's jobs, everything's commercial. It's like, hey, there's a, I see the roles going, can you give me a, an expected yeah. vibe? I mean, that's fine. I, I will say as well, like- You've got to avoid- Ultimatums, though. Yeah, I'm not a and fan you've got of to be, shakedowns. And you've got to be respectful. Mm. And obviously, read the room if they've just retrenched five people because it's a local town in New South Wales and there's been floods and all that stuff. Well, all right, let's just chill out for 10 minutes. Um, but I would also look at percentages as well. Like, if you were paid that 70 grand and, you know, you wanted a pay rise, well... Are you walking in and asking for a fifty percent pay rise or a hundred percent pay rise? So I think business owners look at the percentages as well. Yeah. Um, and remember, it's a lower risk stepping up within your company, yeah, than trying to step up outside mm. and go through a six month probation where and risk the culture at the new yeah, place as well because you don't know what that cu- it's really hard to determine what the culture looks like from the outside mm. and they're probably less wedded to you as an individual while you're still in your probation period, whereas your current employer knows you as a real human. Mm. And so it could be a much lower risk way of getting to the next level and then moving out. I think as well, uh, Carolina, you could depends on your personality, their personality. You could always ask the, hey, off the record, what's the type of thing? Is it worth me applying? Yeah. Say that. Like, but if you don't ask, you don't get. Yeah. So, yeah. Mm. D- don't be a don't be a pussy, but don't be a a non pussy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Leanne Tang, and this is for you, Luke. Oh, gee. look out! Rather. This is your bumble date. Yeah. <laughs> Would love to hear your thoughts about getting into the next stage of a relationship in a financial sense, moving in, sharing expenses, budgeting, especially when one is just moving out and one has moved out for quite some time and has accumulated stuff. So, like you're uh, married. I am. How did you guys blend your money? All right. Um, Mads and I met pretty young. We were were in school. That's Um, cute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then just put that microphone up close again. Sorry, mate. Is that legal? Yeah. (laughs) Um, Right, yeah. So, Mads and I were in school, but then we, we were in a pretty lucky position. Like we both got to live at home, um, saving and all that sort of stuff and we each had our own money I suppose and it wasn't until it wasn't until we we bought we bought a house together um, and it wasn't until that we you know went to the mortgage brokers and it was just seemed so much more simple to do that so we were pretty young I suppose when we bought bought our house and it was just from there everything was joint it was just made it heaps easier do you share your ute does she drive your ute uh, yeah, she does. She she hates it. Yeah. <laughs> there's a um, there's a ute belongs to somebody who lives near me. Yeah, and um, it's driven by a a woman, and mm. she's got this big sticker in the back that says "Not his." <laughs> <laughs> so, f- funny story there, but um, I won't say where she works or anything. But 
some you know, she her her car got ridden off, and so she's had to use my Ute for like the last two years, and we just haven't bought another car because it's like oh, pay Reggie on that, and I don't use it. I've got a company car, and she drives the Ute, and it's a it's like a, a clapped out old Ranger. She drives that to her place of work, and she's in like corporate sort of head office stuff. And there's a car park there, and they always just think the tradies there. It's like no, 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 this is the this is the corporate. She's parking next to Audis and Mercedes Benz and whatever. And just this clapped out old thing. The tradies over there, mate. Like mm. park it over there. But that's pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I I think you just have to communicate and negotiate a win-win solution. Yeah. Well, I always tell our members that you don't have to have one bank account. But you do need one system. Mm. So if you so one bed, one money system, and um, how you do that, it'll usually be some variant on yours, mine, and ours. Um, the relative proportions will be different for everybody. On your other podcast, and that I know, I know some guests come on, mm. and it's just it's it's such hard work, like trying to get that out of their mouth. No, that's my money, or that's her money. That's mm. her money. It just makes life easier. Like I'm always just for simplifying things. It's just mm. like. God, it's just so much easier if it was, you know, all of our money as such. But but yeah, I yeah yeah I just yeah when I'm in the situation where I'm merging my life with somebody, it's going to be a simple system win win. I would imagine, and if there needs to be some comfort and security, and there's an emergency fund in her name only, and that's access. That's awesome. But I would hope I attract somebody where we can just join our life, our goals and our money because it's just money's such a weird thing, isn't it? Mm. Like why do you – and I say this in my book, you share bodily fluids <laughs> but you won't share money. Mm. It's just bizarre. Like – and I know that we bring our own experiences and all that. Like, sure, have a separate account just with your name for day-to-day stuff, but there seems to be a lot of work where I I just think for, you know, my relationships, I would like to be all in in every area of our life. And if there are some past traumas or whatever, well, we'll deal with that with a professional and and wade into the water and all that stuff. But I I do encourage people to to, to have a a separate account with some allocation to it because mm. there's nothing less romantic than a surprise gift bought from the joint account. Yeah. Right? So you need some no questions, no guilt, no remorse. As long as it's legal, it's up to you. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. And I guess the older I get and the more I do these podcasts and the more people I meet, like, uh, do what you want, don't actually care. But mm. the way I see the world hopefully will be that, um, yeah, that weekly spend account, mm. there's X amount, goes to each, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and there's a joint cash hub for all bills. I think conversely, if you are moving in for the first time and it's kind of like flatmates with benefits, yeah. mm. well... That's different. And then you've got to think, well, how do I split it? Do yeah. I split it because I earn twice as much as you? Well, I think... It, yeah. I should pay twice as much or is it, you watch more Netflix than I do, therefore you should pay the Netflix bill. That becomes really tiring after a while. Mm. Is it, yeah, are you doing capitalism where we split it per percentage of our income or socialism where we all pay the same or whatever way it is? Yeah. yeah. But it also depends on how committed you are to the relationship. Mm. I mean, one where you get couples with you know, materially different incomes, 
the lower paid one can often develop habits that they can't sustain after the relationship mm. and the higher paid one can often feel guilty about spending more, cut back and therefore enjoy it less. So you know, I think you probably want to have got to the point where you feel that this is a serious relationship before you do start tipping it all into one kitty. Yeah, I think it's probably just important and I'm just thinking practically what I would probably do. Agree on a system, whatever that is, mm. and send a joint calendar invite for three months or something. And we're like, look, at this time, we're actually going to come up for air and just discuss this in a non-emotional, is this working, is this not? What is working, what isn't? And just doing an autopsy on the systems. Yeah, And you do have to have some ownership of the decision. Mm. You know, the old happy wife, happy life is actually a really dangerous money expression. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I don't know. All these relations. There was a question in there about managing money in a polyamorous relationship. What does that mean? Like multiple parents. Is partners that where you have parents? Oh, yeah, right. And I just wrote. It's I not think, a house full of parents? No, yeah. I don't think I get that. I don't know if I'm old enough. <laughs> I think I wrote like <laughs> you would you would manage it with great transparency and communication. Tact but, and discretion. Yeah. Um, let's just have a look. Um, geez, because we need to go and get dinner. I can feel a schnitty coming on. Mm. <laughs> I mean, there's a question here. Yeah, similar. The cost, Alice Holmes says, the cost of heartbreak and happiness, <laughs> e.g. moving and then separating, separating assets like houses and cars, which may not be paid off, Costs of moving, super issues, etc. Well, well, unscrambling that egg can be very expensive. Yes, but also relationship breakdown in terms of assets, it just turns it into a business negotiation, hmm. which is easy to say, but ram emotion in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you're probably in for a wild time. And it's quite hard to have two perfectly rational people have perfectly rational discussions because usually someone goes to principles and um, principles can be very expensive. Yeah. So I don't think we'll even go there on this one, but I just think, you know, the cost of heartbreak slash happiness. Hmm. Well, like, and this is actually, this is an interesting one. If we're not talking about, hundreds of thousands of dollars or bigger states and you're like, keep the five grand car, knock yourself out. I don't want to deal with you again. Like that could be a cost you're willing to wear could be. to get that toxic thing out of your life. Yeah. So I think you need to draw some parallels there. But yeah. And I think some people get a bit over hung up on keeping the home mm. and you know getting themselves into unsustainable debt which the banks are quite happy to lend you to keep the property, mm. that a clean break can often be the right answer, even though you may just have spent $30,000 in stamp duty to buy it. Yeah, I honestly, guys, like sometimes you just got to go forget the money. I'm getting away from this mm. business deal that went rad, bad. Forget the money. Like, yeah. Because some things aren't about the money. Mm. 
And in fact, there was a question someone put up in the Facebook group and I think they deleted the posts and I was accused of being gynocentric. What? Um, I know, right? <laughs> I feel like, sorry, before that, yeah. I feel like if if both partners or whatever, it's it's being good with money yourself before being good with money as a couple or whatever. And it it shouldn't, say, the, say at the breakup level or whatever, or the, you know, they both go their separate ways, it shouldn't. It sh- exactly, it shouldn't matter about the money who gets the five thousand dollars thing because it's it, it doesn't matter in your life. Like it's a small amount of money or, mm. or whatever it is. It's just like it's not going to financially wreck you to see that go for the sake of just not seeing that person or that business deal or whatever it is. Yeah, uh, yeah. So this post in the Facebook group the other day, uh, this lady said, "Look, I'm separating from my partner." Um, I've been self-employed for most of the time. I don't have much super. I think she said he's got $150,000 in super, been together for over seven years, two kids, all that stuff. She said, I was thinking about asking for $20,000 super. How much should I ask for? And I wrote, (laughs) I'd be asking for maybe at least half. And I did a bit of a wink. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it got a bit wild and anytime in the Facebook group we talk about money, relationships, gender issues with money. We, this, this is in a Facebook group focused on money. Yeah, we've <laughs> got to turn the comments off because it gets feral and there's accusations and all this stuff. So, for the record, it's a negotiation. So, why not ask for half? Because, and this was my rationale, and we don't know all the information there's kids involved. So, sure, this woman had a small business and by law, there's no statutory requirement that 10% is contributed to super. But if there, like if there was, let's use that 10% and she didn't do that, I'm sure that money went into the household mm. anyway. So, as far as I'm concerned, you've got kids she may have chosen a, a small business that was flexible around looking after the kids. Like, sure, call me gynocentric. I'm not even sure I know what that means. Yeah, I, it was very interesting. Um, I mean, I think the point about super in that context is that super is a family asset just like the home and just like a bank account and just like a car and should be treated as such. Whether $20,000 of super is better or worse than $20,000 of car or $20,000 of bank account or $2,000 a week of child support, that's a negotiation. And many, and I may very well be being gynocentric here, Mm, um, many many women in particular will focus on getting the family home with the kids to their own financial detriment that they end up with is you know, house that made perfect sense when there was two incomes um, might not quite make so much sense when there's one and they may be leaving themselves short of living money. So yeah. they don't always uh, do themselves Well, I, I just think that's, yeah, sure, but it's beyond the scope of this post. Yeah. But again, it's just sh- an asset. Chill out, everyone. Like if she asked for half and... I'm just like, you contributed to the family, 
because everyone's like, he worked hard for this and it's his super. It's like there was a choice usually that he actively chose to engage in a relationship and get married. No one forced this guy to be married. might have been an accident having kids, but hey, we lay in the bed we make for ourselves, right? So what would be wrong? And we just don't know all the information, but if the shoe was on the other foot, I'd probably say, yeah, ask for half, see what happens. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I'm. But whatever you do, you want to make sure you can decide it between you rather than expecting the court to do it for you because that's expensive. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Now, we're going to go and get dinner. Any other... Has it been a bit of a waste of your time just to come? I'm sorry. If Not at all. Boring. No, yeah. no, it's good. We're like just chatting. Keeping an open funnel and yeah. seeing what sticks. Yeah, and, and this was the you know the part of these kind of podcasts where we just chat and half of it's entertainment, half of it you might learn something. And oh, half you would want it, to learn something. And half of it ends up in another Facebook group accusing us of uh, high treason and <laughs> bad financial information, which is fine. Take everything. This is one thing. Take everything I say is BS and assume everything's an ad. How about that? Lower everyone's expectations out there. You know, Read the PDS. Read the PDS. Your mileage may vary. All that stuff. Um, so, conditions apply. We might leave it there. Uh, Vince Scully, Life Sherpa, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Clean. Luke, fantastic listener. Do you still <laughs> listen to some of the podcasts? I do. Yeah, yeah. no, all the time. Yeah, cool. I like Although I really like the campfire chats, but everything, everything, you know. Everything you crank them up on site, on, on the... Um, Sometimes. Oh, I couldn't think the of anything Mc- On the worse. Makita radio. I couldn't think of anything yeah. worse. Listening to a podcast on a building site or whatever. Work out. Listen to a Have podcast. you got a Makita radio? Milwaukee. I'm Milwaukee. Yeah. My <laughs> friend Tim, this is so funny, he's like got everything Milwaukee. Yeah, okay. You're like, one of those guys. Yeah. Seriously, he's got probably eight of the hand drills yep. and yep. heaps of the batteries. Ben, those um, rattle guns- mm. That, like for lithium ion battery power, I cannot believe the torque and the power that comes out of those battery operated rattle guns. Mm, yeah. Like when we were adjusting our boat trailer. Are these these torque, torque driver things? Well, no, they're just like a handheld rattle gun. a rattle gun. gun. Yeah. yeah, like a like a drill, but it's a rattle gun. Mm-hmm. Just I can't believe the power and how long they last. Good for like tires and things like that, you know, wheels, taking on and off wheels or whatever and yeah. that sort of thing. It's pretty Just, good. It's good stuff, that Milwaukee. Mm, yeah. This podcast is sponsored by Milwaukee. Yeah. <laughs> um, but seriously, Milwaukee, if you can. So what was the beer that made Milwaukee famous? I don't know. Oh, I don't know. I think it's bad. Mm, oh, it probably was because it's, uh, I'd imagine... Being it called Milwaukee's an American brand. Well, it's a, it's a tagline for some American beer, the beer that made Milwaukee famous. Oh. And, it, and so we had a fire at his house a couple of weeks ago, and you know, a few of the gents maybe had a one or three beers or whatnot. And um, so Tim's family's upstairs asleep, <laughs> and we're down. He walk, we walk back into his garage, and my other mate Tim's like, "Oh, Milwaukee stuff." He's like, "Yeah, I want you to show me this reciprocated thing or whatever." Straight into the bench, like, <laughs> I'm like, it's midnight. <laughs> what? So it was a bit of a, a wee joke. Um, <laughs> do you like Milwaukee year? Mate, work, provide everything. So it's, um, yeah, yeah, it's fine. It's free. It's good. Yeah, yeah. I it. do. I do like it though. I reckon they've got heaps of, heaps of different tools as such. Yeah. More than, say, a Makita or yeah. 
whoever. Maybe your Bunnings, like a right over you or something. It's crap, mm. but yeah. Yeah, love it. Mm. All right. I'm just thinking, was there any other housekeeping while I've got a microphone? There'd be a very low percentage of people that listen right to the end of this stuff. I reckon you'd be surprised. Yeah, really? I reckon. Yeah. I reckon there's people out there that just like want as much information mm. as possible. Yeah. Or just hang around for the bands. Yeah. We can have an after party. All right, let's have an after party. <laughs> let's do it. All right, we're ending it now. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. My Millennial Money supports A21, a charity focused on abolishing slavery and human trafficking all over the world. Check out a21.org.au for more info. If you would like some other giving options, or if you're unsure about which charity you can support, head to thelifeyoucansave.org.au. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. But we need somebody to talk about in the after party. Usually John's, John's good for the after party. He's always got to go. He's in and out. Mm. You're always hacking on him. It's good. Oh, it's what's funny. something fun to talk about at the after party? Oh, okay. Here's – so Michael Dirty Mike Mosco, yeah. my friend, I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast, when I was in the States, and I put this in the Facebook group as an anonymous post, okay, but it was me, the anonymous <laughs> group member. So, Michael, the dickhead, um, and you can leave that in, Nathan. I said something the other day on a podcast and I was called someone a dickhead. Mm. And I'm like, oh, I actually edited that out. I don't like calling like people that. But <laughs> when it's your, like, one of your best friends. Richard Head. Yeah, you can call them whatever. Anyway, I go to the States and his car had to get a new alternator. So, I was off the road. I said, oh, just grab the, the Ranger. Just yep. drive that while I'm away. I don't care. Anyway, get a message while I'm in the States. Oh, Glenn, I screwed up. And he sends me these photos. He went off-road in it and damaged both sides of it. Dings everywhere. Um, I'll show you a photo. Oh, I'm not, I'm, it's going to be hard to get a photo. Do not drive in floodwater. <laughs> yeah. And anyway, so he took it to get quoted. It was $5,100 worth of damage. <laughs> the four doors are dinged. The tub's dinged either side front quarter panel on the left is dings and I've even got scrub bars the rock sliders have been like he went to town I reckon 5100 might just about get you a rear bumper replacement on yeah the I'm like yeah I'm like what the hell are you doing I'm like I didn't think and I was almost going to tell him don't take it off road he's like oh it was going to work I was a bit bored so my predicament was I'm like oh you bloody dickhead so I've got to put it through. Um, I'm go- I am going. To- I put it up in the Facebook group as a poll, um, and I was going to say, "Look, should we get it repaired and just make him pay cash as a mm. stuff you?" Because they're telling me that I've got a no claim bonus, right? <laughs> but if I claim twice in a policy year, the no claim bonus only protects the first claim. Mm-hmm. So, if I have one claim, it doesn't do anything. Have a second claim in the policy year, 
all bets are off. And And then because it's a non-recoverable claim, Mm -hmm. which basically means there's no other party at fault that they can recoup the costs for, like another insurance company, my premium will go up each year. So, it's ridiculous. I'm not going to make him pay $5,000, but- What's it worth? The car. Thirty-five. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I'm like, you should have went a bit harder, mate. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but like, Did he at least fill it up with diesel? <laughs> oh, I don't even know. Full tank's probably worth more than the car now. Yeah. <laughs> but the problem was, it's like, this is like, I don't care. It's insured, whatever. But I'm the one who's now driving it down to the smash repairs, getting the quote. I'm the one who's got to then go on the phone to the insurance company. I've got to drop it back to get repaired. It's just bloody annoying. Lucky you retired. Mm. Mm. No. Yeah, that's right. But yeah, no. Far out. Yeah. Have you got any big plans no, I, this year? Yeah, nor do I have many mates like that. Yeah. But um, big plans. We want we want to go overseas. We want to go overseas before we have kids and stuff. Oh, where, so, are, you, where are you thinking? Just Europe and maybe some Nordic countries, something like that. would be cool. But I don't know. See how we go. Would you do the like six months, three months? Yeah. I don't even think it'd be that big. Like mm. it might, depending on Mad's work and all the yeah. rest of it, but like probably at max a month, you know, yeah. just something like that. But yeah, a few little holidays booked in. We're going down to Tassie soon. So. Tasmania is great. Like yeah. I'm a big fan of Tassie. Seriously, Hobart, mm. it's so good. Good wine. Yeah. 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 Um, good wine. Lots of good wine. I don't drink, so I don't know, but good coffee scene, mm-hmm. good like food and restaurants. Mm. Where are you staying? Do you know yet? We're tr- trying to just do like little B and Bs and yeah, stuff like sure. that. Just maybe, yeah. maybe even a few different joints. I think we're only there for a week or yeah, yeah not just over a week, but um, yeah, and just go down to the cool things, you know, Port yeah. Arthur and is it Mona? Is it Mona? Mm-hmm. The modern yes, yeah, go do that. That'd yeah, be pretty fun. Yeah, I really rate and the markets thing. About, yeah, all around yeah. the water there. That'd be cool. Yeah, um, my friend Matt just bought a holiday house at White Beach, I think. Yeah, I don't know. So, yeah, I might um, cruise down. I was actually going to go down there next week um, because I'm working on another project. It's another book, everyone. Is there many listeners down there? Do you, did you do a Hobart show? Uh, yeah, we did. You did? Yeah, yeah. I think we, we didn't get a huge amount. I think only like 25 people, but it cool. was still awesome. Yeah. Um, nice. And, you know, we are going to advertise the tour and all that stuff uh, for June and uh, for July, August. If you want a bit of a weekend away and you want to come to like a more up close and personal tour, like we're not going to get 200 people in Hobart like we are in Melbourne or Sydney or Brisbane, but I'll still do the tour with 25, 30 people there. So if you want to do a Wagga one? Probably not. (laughs) (laughs) So if you want to come down to Hobart, come down. Like just take a long weekend, take the Friday off, fly in Friday, we'll do the Friday night show, we'll hang out. And then Life Sherpa will fund it. Life Sherpa will fund it. We did a, um, we drove across on the ferry a couple of Christmases ago. Oh, the spirit. Yeah. And you, know, you arrive in Launceston at the crack of dawn, and there's these conga line of cars heading up into the centre of Launceston to these little cafes in the, in these laneways in the middle of nowhere. Great coffee. Mm. Yeah. So I was, I was going to go down there and just kind of retreat and do some writing. Um, but I just don't think I will. Cool story. <laughs> Starting to get cold. Well, I. So what I did was I 
because I'm like, I just need a different vibe. And I don't want to write in the studio because it's like a bit dark and dingy. I don't want to write in my office upstairs because I don't want to feel like I'm in a small room. So I move the big screen computer that I've got in the office downstairs into my dining room. So at least I've got lots of natural light. It's a big down, bigish downstairs area. It feels different. So I've just been doing it at home and I think I'll just do that uh, coupled with uh, the libraries are all open and back to normal now. Uh, libraries are really good to go to do some work at. Except today when there was a freaking handful of screaming kids at the library doing some read thing where the lady was reading the books and it was like, I'm like, was she reading your book? I'm like, shouldn't there be quiet in the library? And there was like 30 kids crying and it was pretty funny. I just had my headphones in so I didn't actually care. She was reading Clay James's book. Yeah, that's right. They were all crying. Um, Shooting bench presses with it. Pretty much. So, look, let's get dinner. I did, I'm not prepared. Usually with the after parties, I've got questions for John, like dumb mm. questions. And sometimes I like to test him. <laughs> I liked it. All right. Thanks, Luke. Thanks, Vince. See ya. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.